Lawrence, or Larry Wrinkle, is a New York City-based writer, musician, educator, and playwright. Larry came to playwriting after teaching college English and then working as a technical writer, a career from which he retired in 2014. A lifelong devotee of art, theater, film, and classical music, he has had plays produced all over the United States. His full-length, A Kreutzer Sonata about a talented Jewish piano student, was awarded Best Play at the Secret Theater's 2017 Unfringed Festival and received its Long Island premiere in December of 2019. Other produced plays include adaptations from Chaucer and Dante, a farce about gender-blind casting in Shakespeare, several mostly gay romantic comedies, and several one-minute plays, including a very cute one about Chopin's Minute Waltz. He is strongly interested in classical traditions in music, art, and literature. Several of his plays focus on the lives of creative people. Major figures in music and literature, Beethoven, Shakespeare, Dante, Chaucer, figure in these plays, and he is also greatly interested in the art of adaptation, which sometimes gets a bad rap from theater people who think it is a less creative type of drama than works with original plots. But Larry believes he has never been as original as in his modern verse adaptations from Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Because Larry has no sense of humor, many of his plays are comic or farcical. Among his favorites are plays that focus on the absurdity of life, such as Stage Fright, in which a group of actors is too afraid to go on stage, Pinch My What, where a struggling young actor tries a desperate cockamamie scheme to land a role in a B-level horror picture, and Peas in the Fried Rice, where workers out for Chinese lunch suffer greatly when their favorite restaurant starts adding peas to the fried rice. You can find out more about Larry's plays from the website newplayexchange.org. Hello. Hi. I can you adjust see my camera. Yeah, I was gonna say I can see the top of your head. Well, that might be the best part of me. <laughs> um, How are you? I'm okay. Yourself? Good, good. I think uh, you and I both have been uh, struggling emotionally through everything, but that's kind of part of the process, I think, of going through everything that we're mm -hmm. going through. Nice to be able to, to kind of interact with you in a more you know, casual atmosphere. We've only had so many opportunities to do so because we've been involved in one of your productions otherwise. Right. So you and I have an interesting way of uh, meeting one another. I knew of you and, and reached out to you, I think numerous times before actually working with you because I saw different postings at the New York Casting Calls Facebook group for your works and submitted, but didn't get cast for whatever reason. And then when a, a Kreutzer Sonata was being cast, I'm trying to think how I actually got, it was probably New, New York casting calls, I'm assuming. And then Tim asked me to come audition. I, I think that's how it happened. Does that sound about right to you? Yeah, that's uh, Tim Oriani, uh, yeah. the director, who in fact was the first actor who played the lead in that play, David Lindenbaum. Um, it's this is a thing that um it's always uh, a little bit sensitive to talk to actors and why was someone not cast why was someone not auditioned it's the same thing as when a uh, playwright's work is not accepted for a theater or a festival there's just a lot of competition and um you i may just feel oh this person is absolutely right for this part um and this person may be great for something else altogether, but I just don't see the person in this particular role. Um, so, and sometimes uh, I may get 25 to 50 applicants for a single part. Um, if I post through backstage or NYC casting calls, 
And when, in fact, when we did cast you for uh, Avram Lindenbaum, we had been finding a really hard time casting that particular role. Um, that was the hardest one of all. Uh, but Tim uh, saw your submission and he was convinced that you were the right person for the part. And there we were. And the rest yeah. is history. And uh, I'm glad you joined us. I think uh, you did well. I'm very glad that I was, I was a part of that. That was a great experience, really mm -hmm. was. And, and being someone that has done casting before, you know, I started as a producer and then a director and then finally an actor, which is the opposite of the route that most people go. Mm -hmm. But when I was casting, it, I think it really helped me later as a working actor to not take auditions personally if I don't get the role. I mean, at some point you realize that auditioning is its own art form and you don't take these things personally, but especially with my background, having done casting. Anyway, yeah, I was very happy to be involved in a Kreutzer Sonata and I was doubly happy when, uh, unfortunately, the lead in that play had to back out and then you cast a friend of mine as the lead and, and Will Ketter. He and I hadn't worked together professionally until that point, we were only involved with another theater company's basically workshop for a few months. He's still with that company at the Seeing Place. Mm -hmm. And he's getting great, great experience from them. He's already a gifted actor. But um, yeah, Kreutzer Sonata, the play was great. I really enjoyed the role. I loved the cast. I loved Will. I loved the Long Island <laughs> Railroad train rides. Uh, you, yes. Yep. Locked out. <laughs> yep. Um, I loved those experiences with the cast and just kind of, you know, talking and chilling and snapping on the way and to and from. I loved that we did it and it was around Christmas time and we got to be ridiculous and sing everyone's favorite Christmas song to hate, which is Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas. And yeah. that, little, that little Christmas thing in the park that they had. Mm -hmm. There was so many good, I have only good memories of that experience with you, really. Yeah, I'm, I'm delighted to hear that. If you had to guess, in your litany of work, Yes. what number is Kreutzer Sonata of the number of plays you've written? You mean um, in terms of where I would rate it? or the No, number? no, in terms of chronologically, how many plays had you, have you done? Where is, what is Kreutzer Sonata for you? Is that number 100, number 200, number no, three? No, no. I, in fact... Um, only started playwriting seriously after retiring in uh, 2014. So my, my catalog is not as large as some playwrights. I would say that um, I've written roughly 30 plays all told, plus another 20 that I would just have withdrawn or scrapped or decided I'm not going to go anywhere with. And I'd probably cull the 30 down by 10 if I really wanted to, but uh, I've only produced three full-length plays so far, although I have perhaps another three or four in draft or outline or just sparks in my mind. So Kreutzer is one of the f three full-lengths I've done, and I've done perhaps, oh, maybe 15, 20, one-act plays ranging from 10 to 30 minutes, mostly 10 minutes. 
I've done a number of one-minute plays or one to two-minute plays, about, about six or eight of those, and a number of uh, monologues of various lengths. So I would say I've written about 30 pieces to date from starting about 10, 2014. Some people are far more prolific than I am. I know people who write a 10-minute play a day. I just can't do that. So would you say that your writing has evolved in that period of time, or, or would you say that, that you, you have achieved and experienced so much as an artist throughout your life that once you got to become a playwright, you had already kind of worked through some of the, um, you know, the lesser quality stuff? I would say that the earlier stuff I wrote was often very bad. Um, and I've learned over the years a lot of things. Um, let me give you an example. The very, first, the very first play I decided I wanted to write was Capriccio Radio, which is a full-length play. And the concept is that a classical radio station is un being challenged or to improve its finances. Um, it's, it, was, it had been given a free ride for a long time, but under new management, it's being told that it has to be more profitable. And that causes all kinds of repercussions for the staff and the announcers involved and their personal relations, what have you. And the play was intended originally as a sort of a you might say a debate or uh, on my feelings about the um, function of classical music in today's society, where it's largely become marginalized. As other types of music are more familiar to a larger range of listeners, and classical music is being um, relegated to a, um, a tradition of dead white European males. Um, that is now suspect in a lot of quarters. Um, and so uh, the first draft of it was about 2011 or so. Yeah. No, it even goes back a few, few years before that I started think, thinking about it. And it has nothing to do with where it is now because it was, in all respects, terrible. It was, it was, much too talky and much too much like a debate, uh, more an exposition of ideas than an actual conflict in dramatic terms. And I would say it, it was far too long. And it took me, in fact, um, writing numerous other pieces before I could go back to it and do a hopefully better job with it. So it evolved and it became much more pointed, much much tighter, much more dramatically focused. I still am not entirely satisfied with it, because, but I want to get it right someday. When I came to ask Tim to direct, his first thought was, do you think you could tighten it a little bit? And so I looked at a sentence or two, and then I looked at more sentences, and by the Four or five days later, I had 
tightened the play by about 20%. We literally stripped out a lot of excess. And I think it plays much more tautly. But these are things you, that you, you acquire technique the more you do. I'm Tim Moriani, and I'm going to be directing A Kreutzer Sonata by Larry Wrinkle. A Kreutzer Sonata, to me, is about the transition from being told what your identity is to choosing what your identity is. When Larry first had me audition for this piece two years ago, I felt an affinity towards the character of David. His, his uh, level of spirituality was something that I could really relate to, and it's such a meaty role. He has such great relationships with, with family and his friends, and it's a dream for an actor because you get to do so much. You get to show so many sides uh, of this character. The story in this play is about a young Jewish piano player, David Lindenbaum, going to college for the first time and experiencing the outside world. Now, as a director, I get to take someone else's brand new interpretation of the role and layer on my own understanding of this character to create, hopefully, a very, very detailed and specific performance. For David, every other character in the play offers him an opportunity uh, to be challenged and that has a deep emotional effect on him and at the end of the day he chooses which bits of these different aspects of his life he gets to incorporate into himself. When directing this production, my uh, biggest motif is choices and uh, light. Every time David is presented with uh, opposing life views, he is offered two paths and he gets to choose one or the other and then eventually maybe he doesn't need these paths to be offered to him, he's able to create his own path. Yeah, you know, there's uh, a, a playwright slash screenwriter slash uh, he's always writing. He helped write some of the episodes of Lost. One of the things that I found him saying to his fellow writers for TV shows, because you always have a series of writers for any given project, was if you are handing me something and you're not absolutely certain that every single word needs to be said, why are you sending it to me? That really is it. You need to trim fat. So it's such an important part of presenting worthwhile art. And I think that's what you're saying, right? Yeah, but there's, there, that's, that's not all there is. The, the play also, and I see this with many plays I read um, that have this problem. The play cannot just be a lengthy dialogue. It has to have some kind of story arc or conflict. Um, and I see a lot of plays that just don't have that. They, are, they rely too much on exposition. Um, exposition is very difficult to handle because um, when you have character A and character B talking about things that they both know about, but the audience doesn't, you have to find a way to handle that exposition so that the audience doesn't sense, oh, they are just saying these things for our sake. There has to be a reason for A to remind B of things they both know about. Or you have to have a, another character seen who doesn't know what A and B know already. Um, that's also you know, very, very tricky. Well, isn't one of the rules of thumb, show, don't tell? That is a rule of thumb that I, I think um, 
more means don't narrate, show the action. But I don't altogether agree with that. I've seen plenty of plays, and I actually have some some of my own, where there is a fair amount of narration by a chorus character. Um, even Hamlet, I can find you easily a dozen a examples of narration where we're not actually seen, shown the story, that part of the story. And that's sometimes for practical purposes and sometimes because it, it just works better dramatically. So I, I, don't, necessarily, I don't necessarily agree with that rule. I, I would say more it's show when appropriate, which is probably most of the time, and tell when it's appropriate, which is also some of the time. So you think it's maybe more of a, a good mindset to have when writing less than an absolute rule? Definitely, yeah. Okay. One thing I, I always want to see in my plays is that there is some sense of a beginning, middle, and end. I want to say that, I want to see that a character, if a character starts in one place, by the end of the play, they're in a different place. That also bleeds into a different, I don't know if it's a rule of thumb or if it's another guidance type thing, but as a director, when I first started to direct, I was given a book by one of my favorite directors at the time. One of the things that it said to remember was every single scene is a chase scene. And I definitely see that now, having had experience as a director. But would you say that's generally true, that every scene is a chase scene? How would you define a chase scene? I think what you, I think what you just said, which is um, we're starting in a certain place. By the end of this, these, these people need to get, they're trying to get to this other place, sure. whether that's a mental, physical, whatever, mm -hmm. right? Well, yeah, of course, the overall arc of the play has, has its, has its storyline, and then each segment may have a mini storyline within it that contributes to the ultimate result. I want to see the characters transforming. That doesn't always happen in real life, of course. Sometimes in real life, characters just remain very, very static. Sometimes instead of confrontation, they just walk away. But within drama, you want to see some kind of tension, conflict, resolution. I've worked with, here in New York, a number of director playwrights where they're, they're, they're early on in their career. So they have written a play and they're choosing to direct it as well, which is frequently not a great experience as an actor to be in that situation because there's nobody to, to tell that director or that playwright when they're, when they're kind of getting off course. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's good to have people around you who can kind of give you uh, you know, critiques and like constructive criticism. So what's that experience been like for you? And is that just an experience for newer, newer playwrights? The other is as a, a poetry writer, song lyric writer, the impetus for these things is often something that is emotionally unnerving and you need to get that out in some way. As a playwright that has written so many different types of stories, what has that impetus been for you for these stories? Or is there a specific place where you find yourself and you go, I need to write? What happens there? The impetus varies depending on 
um, a number of both internal and possibly external things. When I started thinking about the Capriccio radio play, it was an internal impetus completely. I don't think, I, I don't know if the play will ever be produced. I don't think it's something that's going to, to appeal to large um, segments of an audience, but one always hopes. But I, I felt that there was, I wanted to somehow dramatize my feelings about this type of music and where it is in our culture today. I think that everybody, whether they recognize it or not, has some attitude towards classical music, even if it's only apathy or indifference or um, uh, hostility. But there, are, there is, on the other hand, a very small but impassioned segment of the population that lives with this music and loves it more than life itself. So how do I bridge that gap? How, do we, how, do, how does this music survive in a culture where 95% of the music that is um, being heard by most audiences is popular or rock or that sort of thing? Does classical music have a future? Um, and that was my internal impetus for the play. Whether it, it gets produced or not, I wanted to uh, dramatize that. Other types of plays, the impetus has been, well, for, for instance, um, more external. I wrote a play called The Flying Dutchman Boards the Staten Island Ferry, um, which is a sort of a gay romantic comedy plus a ghost story plus um, something based on opera um, and that takes place in New York City. Um, and there was a, a theater that from time to time gives the uh, prompt to write something about the Staten Island Ferry and something that's supernatural. And I, I was staring at this problem for a couple of weeks with nothing coming to me. All of a sudden, ah, oh, I know what I can do with this. So first we went to the beach, right? And that was fun. But then the museum <laughs> and that Japanese movie that was so slow and boring, I wanted to gouge my eyes out. Your story is one of the greatest. Like, and those ballet tickets must have cost you a fortune. Well, not that much. It's like you're trying to impress me by spending all this money. I'm not trying to buy you if that's what you're implying. Okay, maybe a little. Look, Xander, you're not a boyfriend, you're a tour guide. So, I wrote it, I workshopped it, um, sent it off to the theater, they rejected it. Um, <laughs> but it has had, I think, three productions in New York following. And some people liked it a lot. Uh, so. So that was a purely, largely external impetus where I found the internal impetus. The Kreutzer Sonata was a different affair altogether, um, in which I had gotten to know a couple of um, young uh, millennial Orthodox Jews, modern Orthodox Jews, modern Orthodox being the strand of Judaism where um, you believe devoutly in the Torah, but you still try to engage in the modern world, which 
is the conflict, as you, I'm sure you realize, that my main character is going through all the time. And I am you know, nominally Jewish. I was bar mitzvah. I, went, I was brought up reform. And afterwards, I had no real um, ties to Judaism, to speak of sort of like of Ram. I'm more like of Ram than I am David. I'm more like the father than the son. And I wanted to write a, I came up with the idea, what if the, it's the son who is the devout one and the father the apostate? So I came up in a day with a synopsis. Uh, the Jewish play project had a two week deadline for submitting something. And I asked my, uh, my, my Jewish friend Yaakov, you think I can write a full length play in two weeks? And he said, no. And then away I said, I did it. And I, I, I produced the first draft. I sent it off. Nothing, nothing like what you know now. It's much, much less refined, much less uh, polished. But that's where that came from. And I decided to, to find a way, how do I um, deal with my own Judaism? My attitude towards the religion I was brought up in that I no longer really follow very devoutly myself, but still is a part of me, you know, in a way that I, you know, I'm unfamiliar with Catholicism, um, Christianity, Islam. I know some of these, but they're not a part of me. I'm, I'm still a Jew. You know, you can, you can, you can stop going to synagogue, but you can't really devolve the. Um, you can't really eliminate your heritage. So that's where that one came through. Another one that uh, a little one called Peas in the Fried Rice was a little farce about going to lunch in a Chinese restaurant. And I, and I wrote it after um, um, co-workers of mine would go out every Thursday to lunch. And we, we always have these ridiculous squabbles about nothing. And so I wrote a little farce about that. So, yeah, sometimes the play comes from an internal source, sometimes it doesn't. Now, as for your question about directing, um, here's where I get to my theory about plays, which I think would be worth going into. There, there are three types of plays, in my opinion, and they have to be all understood by the playwright, the director, the actors, and maybe even the audience. There first, there are plays in public domain. Shakespeare, obviously. Directors can do anything they want without any kind of copyright um, violation or copyright uh, issues. And the first thing a Shakespeare director will normally do is cut huge sections of the play for a suitable running time as may have happened in Shakespeare's day, uh, as has been theorized. The, the texts we have were texts prepared for publication, but may not have reflected what actually happened on the stage. Um, you, you, you would, a four-hour four Hamlet is probably not what Shakespeare's audience would have experienced. But, no, even though a purist will complain about any changes to the text, 
you can do anything you want. And many directors do, for better or worse. Second type of play is a published piece under copyright, such as maybe Stoppard's Arcadia or Kushner's Angels in America, many, many, many others. The director cannot make changes to the text. It's not legal, it's not responsible, the text is fixed, and you have to abide by the text. And there are many cases in which where a director has tried to make changes to the text, they have found themselves in legal trouble. Sometimes a playwright will even withdraw the play, knowing that changes have been made without permission. The third type is the most interesting of all, perhaps, the type of play that, the type of play I've, I've been writing. The new play that has not been published that may have received one or two performances or none at all. And it has been said that a play uh, never really reaches final form until it's had at least one or two productions. Because you can't really see how the play works until you see it on stage. But what you think may work may or may not at all. I've had instances where actors have found things in rehearsal that I never intended. And sometimes they improvise. And sometimes that makes me really, really annoyed. But sometimes I start to see something that they're finding in the character. Or they'll say to me, hmm, I need more dialogue here to, to, to build this scene. Or I think you can cut here, it's going on too long. And here, of course, you, you have to, as a playwright, play a kind of a, a game in which you say, all right, yeah, okay, some of what you're saying I may accept, some I won't. Ultimately, it's the playwright's choice what the script turns into. But if you have a good director and good actors, they contribute. Today we've come to play for you The Merchant's Tale by Chaucer. And when our tale is over, then we'll pass around the saucer. It's the tale of rich old January and his lovely young wife May. A, a cautionary tale, we'd say, why you shouldn't marry past your day. The characters in this play today are limited to three. The lovely May, <laughs> the old man, he, and January's charming, dashing, gay, and handsome young assistant, Damien. <laughs> It's me. And now to our tale. Imagine, please, old January's magnificent estate. Grounds, a mansion, and servants, too. Plus, a garden that your minds must recreate. So, sometimes, you know, you, you get good feedback. Not always. I've had instances where the feedback I've received, I felt, was totally off base. And I just have to politely say, I'm sorry. Thank you for your comments and hope it doesn't go anywhere else. I had a little play called Brian's Poems in which one reader said, uh, I hope the play is better than the title. Um, all right, whatever. But another person said, um, I think you should take out the character of Brian, who's in fact the major character in the play, and have the conflict between two other characters. I didn't accept that. 
So that would have changed that that story entirely. Of course. So. So the the thing about writing a play is that ultimately, you, know, you have to listen to whatever other people tell you, but ultimately you have to make the decision. Which is, I guess, a big part of playwriting is letting go enough to allow feedback and letting go enough to allow the artistry of acting and directing do their thing, right? Right. And finding a director who's on your wavelength, who, 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 who grasps what you're trying to do and helps, you guide, helps guide you towards it without trying to make it their play. Right. Larry, I think you and I probably could have talked for another two hours. Easily. Uh, yeah. Um, thank you so much for giving us some time to really hear what it's like from your perspective. And uh, I know, again, there's so much more we could have touched on, but I appreciate the little bit of time you gave us. I appreciate it too, Isaac. Thank you so much. 